I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. How old was he when you first saw him? Six weeks old. I think that my first memory of him and, you know, that, that I remember the most was they were standing by one of the barns um, at the farm um, and it was his mom and he was standing right next to her and he literally was posing. He just had that sort of the look that some of them have when they're surveying the, their kingdom, if you will. Pavla Nygaard's been a horse owner for most of her adult life and a breeder since 2012. The greatest horse she's ever bred was named Battle of Midway. His ancestors include famous old horses like Native Dancer, Nashua, Raisin Native, Northern Dancer, Mr. Prospector, and Secretariat. Pavla talked about him less like a horse and more like her kid. He had big energy around him. Um, his energy, a lot of the times, was just in kind of a mischievous way. His speed number would depend on who his opponent was, because as soon as he was able to, you know, look the next horse in the eye, he just wouldn't give up. He wouldn't give in. His jockeys said, by the time you would turn home, if he hooked with a horse, you knew that he was going to be the one to come out on top. On the first Saturday of May in 2017, Battle of Midway stood in the starting gates at the Kentucky Derby. He was a 40-to-1 underdog, and he was racing against the fastest three-year-olds in the world. Instead of getting spooked by the other horses or the big crowd or the commotion, he found an extra gear and finished third. He earned a reputation as a grinder who kept fighting when more expensive and famous horses quit. Six months after the Derby, he ran in the prestigious Breeders' Cup Dirt Mile, again as a long shot. Joke with a late run, but it is Battle of Midway in front. Battle of Midway battling back sharp as Tacker. What a thriller! Battle of Midway gonna get there. Battle of Midway and a thriller. Battle of Midway won an attack. Sharp as Tacker, a very game second. His reputation often preceded him. People liked to watch him run. Early in the morning of February 23, 2019, Battle of Midway was training at Santa Anita, his home track in California. Horsemen stood around with binoculars and stopwatches. Then, less than a quarter of the way around the track, his jockey heard a pop. Battle of Midway had taken a bad step and shattered a bone in his leg. Across town, Pavla's phone buzzed. She looked down to find a horse racing news alert. I don't remember the exact wording, but it said something about the breakdown and so I immediately started calling the trainers and the assistant trainers and trying to figure out if there was anything that I could do to help. The bone was in lots of tiny pieces and there wasn't anything to be done. A horse's circulatory system requires steady blood flow to the hooves to work and therefore long periods without moving are fatal. Turns out an animal bred to run fast actually dies if it stays still. 
Battle of Midway was in shock that was about to turn into serious pain, so a quick decision was made. Almost immediately, vets gave him a lethal injection. We almost stopped at the track the day before and didn't get the chance, but uh, I saw him the week before, so at least I can remember that. But, you know, I feel, you know, pretty strong sense of gratitude for having had the chance to be around a horse like that. Um, You know, I feel sadness that he's no longer here. After Battle of Midway died, Pavlo went to visit his mom in Kentucky. She found her grazing in a field. I remember that it was a kind of a cloudy but somewhat sunny day, and she was standing out there with a couple of other mares, and she was kind of in the middle, and the sun was breaking through the clouds, but the sun rays were going, you know, directly on her and not the other mares, and there was something really beautiful about that, and then she noticed me, and then she came up to me, and then I sat down on the ground, and she hung out next to me, and I don't remember if I was there for 20 minutes, half an hour, or longer than that, but, you know, she fell asleep next to me, and her nose a few inches away from mine, and it was just very special to have the chance to be around her. Did you tell her what had happened? I did. Battle of Midway was one of the horses the public knew best, but he was just one of dozens to die at Santa Anita. Racetracks count deaths in fiscal years, July to June. In 2018-2019, 49 horses died. The dead horses caught the world's attention. The story showed up in the newspapers and then on cable TV. It's our top story on KCAL 9 News at noon today. The state horse racing board meeting at Santa Anita today. The, first the latest deaths at the track mean 25 horses have died at Santa Anita during the last six months. Protesters picketed the track, demanding that it be shut down. A dozen of them demonstrated outside the Arcadia racetrack today, and that's because a four-year-old filly suffered a leg injury. There were even calls for a national ban on racing. They're dying, and if they were not here, they would not be dying. Yes, some of them die in nature, but not like this. I know a little bit about this world. I've covered the Triple Crown for ESPN and for the newspaper in Kansas City where I used to work. But my interest in horse racing is way more than professional. I've always had a soft spot for the sport and for the whole world that surrounds it, ever since I was a kid. I think the thing that makes horse racing different from pretty much any other sport is the way it holds up a mirror. If you want to understand what's happening in America at any given moment in the last hundred or so years, you don't look at football or basketball, you look at horse racing. That might sound like a rhetorical flourish or something, but it's true. You only have to scratch below the surface a little, and horse racing shows you where we are as a people and where we're headed. So when I heard about the dead horses at Santa Anita, the reporter in me obviously cared about what was going on there, for sure. But some other little bell went off, a kind of instinct that this meant something, and I wanted to understand what. So... We're going to start with the crisis at Santa Anita, looking into the theories about what led to the deaths of those horses and the effect that those deaths are having on the people who live and work at the track. That's what this episode is about. This show, however, 
is about what those dead horses represent. It feels to me like thoroughbred racing in America is in the midst of a real existential crisis, and it's not limited to one track. Sure, it helps to look closely at what's gone on at Santa Anita, but that's just one setting on the lens. In the following episodes, we're going to open that lens wider. In episode two, we'll be going back in time to explore the moment an alleged murder changed racing from a sport to a business. And in episode three, we'll go to the breeding farms of Kentucky where the fastest horses in the world are made, looking for a flaw in their blood and for an answer to the question, what is the future of horse racing? I'm Wright Thompson. This is Bloodlines. Episode one, when a horse dies. Santa Anita Park is one of the last places in the Los Angeles area where life follows the same rhythms it did a hundred years ago. It would look like a Wild West postcard if it wasn't surrounded by shopping malls. I've come to Santa Anita I don't know how many times over the years. I love it here. I just like being at a racetrack in general and always have. I really like buying a daily racing form. That's how the day should start. I like how small groups of people huddle around their own dog-eared copies, making tiny notes in lunatic handwriting, sipping small styrofoam cups of coffee. I like making bets and drinking cold beer. Anybody who's ever walked to a rail and watched the horses run, it really is remarkable. That's Joe Drape, racing reporter for the New York Times. He's been covering the industry for decades, but he can still get as sentimental around the track as I do. They're in the gate. hear them breathe, you can hear that, that rhythmic clip-clop. It's like, you know, heads hitting a pillow. Just really, really visceral. I totally get it. I really love it when a great horse is chewing up huge swaths of dirt with each stride. Because in that moment, you can see a little bit of Darwin at work, or God, or whatever belief system helps you hammer order from the chaos. There's moments that it seems that all four feet are off the ground, that they're flying. Can you imagine a world in which there is no horse racing? Oh, yeah, and I think I think they're starting to imagine it, and they better start worrying about it because, uh, you know, they're close to being out of business. What's at stake is a huge part of the economy. I mean, just don't look at it as the breeding business or the gambling business. It's an agribusiness. I mean, it's grass, it's hay and feed, it's uh, blacksmiths, it's tax stores. It's like a $15 billion industry. Right around the time that Battle of Midway went down, Joe started getting calls from sources who worked at Santa Anita. The backside of a racetrack is a small town, and everybody talks. And, you know, I've had grooms who've called me. I've had assistant trainers who've called me. I've had trainers who call me. Uh, they knew something bad was about ready to happen. Joe's byline was on a March 15, 2019 story that announced the Los Angeles County District Attorney would be launching an investigation. Animal rights activists wanted them to look for evidence of cruelty at Santa Anita. And... Now you have this 
huge awareness about the safety of horses and jockeys. And then the next question is, why do they die? Over the next nine months, investigators focused on four areas of concern. The first was the track itself. 2018-19 was the wettest year on record at Santa Anita since 2008, and heavy rain is just hell on a track. First, it turns to muck, which is dangerous for a horse to run in. And then, when it quickly dries, that muck turns as hard as pavement, which is just as bad on a horse's legs. So one theory was that track maintenance was the primary culprit. The second was medication. Lots of people thought that the horses might have been all doped up when they died. They are performance-enhancing drugs in horse racing, just like there are in other sports. It's a problem throughout the industry. And people started wondering if maybe it was especially bad at Santa Anita. Maybe there was less medical oversight of the horses who trained and ran there. And the other two areas of concern had to do with pressure being put on trainers to run horses who shouldn't have been running. A common way to increase revenue at a racetrack is to run as many races as possible and to make sure that all of those races are filled. So the question was, were they going too far at Santa Anita? Were they forcing trainers to either enter horses that weren't in good enough shape to race or run horses in unsafe conditions? And there was pressure to run cheaper horses and more races, you know, because the more races you run, the more people can bet on. And uh, there was a, a real strain on the horsemen uh, at that point. This is John Parada. He was the general manager of Santa Anita until 2018. From the outside, the pressure on trainers looked like a normal business decision. But people on the inside said that it was connected to a family feud. The track is owned by the Stronach Group, which was founded by the now 87-year-old billionaire Frank Stronach. In 2013, Frank turned control of the company over to his daughter, Belinda. He had moved back to Austria, which is where he was born, to start a right-wing populist political party, as you do. When Frank's party collapsed in 2017, he returned to the racing business, called a meeting with his executives, and thought he'd pick up right where he left off. Only Belinda wouldn't hand him back control. Frank Stronach found that he'd been boxed out of the Stronach group. So the CEO looked at me and said, look, Frank, this isn't your company anymore. I said, what you mean? That's Frank. I talked with him in January. Belinda declined to speak with me, but she's made numerous public comments in the past about how her father's reckless spending forced her to protect the family business. According to her father... She runs the track like it were any other business. And Frank says that's the problem. In the management, I think some of them would like to sell the racetracks. They'd be happy if horses break down. Why? Why? Because then racing would be ruled off and they can sell the racetrack. What is the land beneath Santa Anita worth? Well, what uh, what are 300 acres worth, right? And I think uh, it's worth a lot of monies. Frank is not so coyly accusing his daughter of wanting racing to be banned so that she could sell the land and developers could turn it into something else. By the way, there's zero proof that Belinda was secretly happy that horses were dying. It seems absurd on its face to me, 
But the fact that the idea was being tossed around at all is a testament to how nasty the feud had become. If you were running Santa Anita right now, yes. would there be less dead horses? Absolutely. The horse is the main actor. We got to protect them. We got to prove to the public that we care. I am accusing the management that they have been grossly negligent. They can sue me of that. Those are very strong words. In December of last year, the Los Angeles County DA's report came out. I'm just going to read their conclusion to you. The task force did not uncover sufficient evidence of animal cruelty on the part of Santa Anita Park or any individual trainer, owner, or jockey. The task force did identify several areas of concern and possible factors that may have contributed to the deaths. Okay, so basically, the track could possibly be made safer and maybe the meds could be better regulated, but there was no provable criminal activity at Santa Anita. This specific track might have been cleared, but that didn't mean the sport in general was clean, or that the specific problems at Santa Anita weren't going on at other tracks around the country. And it certainly didn't mean that people would stop paying attention. Eyewitness News reporter Tim Fleischer live along Manhattan with more on this story. Tim. Three months later, there was a federal indictment. And federal authorities are telling us this is by far the most far-reaching prosecution of racehorse doping in the history of the Department of Justice. On March 9th, federal prosecutors brought 27 charges against vets and trainers in a doping scheme involving at least five other tracks around the country. Racehorse trainers Jorge Navarro and Jason Service, as well as nine other trainers, seven veterinarians, and nine drug suppliers and distributors. The defendants who we charge today engaged in this conduct, not for the love of the sport and certainly not out of care for the horses, but for money. The investigation by the FBI spanned two years. So that was the state of the sport, at least in the world before coronavirus. Under siege from protesters on the West Coast, under siege from federal agents and prosecutors on the East Coast, with declining attendance and wagering and racing schedules at every track in between. Racing has become relevant one day a year when the Kentucky Derby runs, and it's fighting for its existence the other 364. In the aftermath of the charges, Bob Baffert, the most famous trainer in the country, wrote a Washington Post op-ed saying that racing had two options, either police itself or face an end to the sport. Baffert is basically the Michael Jordan of horse racing. He's won five Kentucky Derbies and two Triple Crowns. He's the only racing person that my mom knows. He also happens to be based at Santa Anita. So I sent him a text message and invited myself to go spend some time with him at his barn to see how he sees all this from inside the eye of the storm. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The 
The front side of a racetrack is like a city, but the back side is like a farm. The dividing line between these worlds is something called the stable gate. What's going on? We're meeting Bob. Bob I went with my producers, Courtney and Jess, to Santa Anita. We made an appointment with Bob Baffert to hear what he thinks about the dead horses and the attention that's been brought to his sport. And, if we're being honest, to have a reason to get behind that gate. All right, can I have you actually wait outside the gate until Bob gets here? Sure. No this problem. way he can get you guys visitor passes because we have no clue of this. Yes, of okay. course. Okay. Okay. He's going to just meet him here at 6.30. That's cool. We were standing out in the dirt by the gate when he pulled up. He just sped right on by. Yeah. Flashed his lights at us like, come on. I knew it was him because the headlights that were flashing at us were attached to the front of a black Bentley. I was like, of course. The vanity plate on the back of the Bentley said Pharaoh, the name of one of his two Triple Crown winning horses. Morning, sunshine. I don't know, man. It's a great day to be around some horses. How you doing? The stable gate between the parking lot and the barns is both a literal divide and a cultural one. Once you step through, you're in a world understood only by horse people. Bob often uses it to make that exact point. Right, you know what I tell all my uh, clients? That gate right there, that the entrance there? Right now, before we go in there, your IQ is right here and I'm right here. But the minute we walk past there, it switches. <laughs> it would take Bob about 10 minutes to walk from his barn over to the empty grandstands where he watches his horses train. In his fancy golf cart, it only takes about two. He grew up on a border town ranch in Arizona, and now he's got a golf cart with rims, an expensive Leica binoculars, and this really fancy digital stopwatch. The price of his gear has changed with his success, but the essential ritual of watching horses at first light remains the same. One of the best parts of hanging out with Bob at the track is listening to how he talks to and about his horses. To be honest, I don't know what he means half the time, but the words themselves have this lyrical quality that I like. Okay, he's gonna leave the half right over there. Boom, right there. See him over there? Like he's gonna go probably 12, one or two. Let me see here, boom. Ooh, like 11.92, he went fast. He looked like he was, he was honking it. I remember the first time I ever saw Bob Baffert. In person, I mean. I'd seen him on TV lots of times before. He was standing outside his barn the week of some long ago Kentucky Derby. I honestly don't even remember which one. What I do remember, and remember so clearly, is how expensive his cowboy boots looked. They were ostrich skin, and they just shined like money. 23 and one, just cruise, easy boy. That was at least 15 years ago, and his reputation has only grown. Today, he trains some of the most expensive horses in the world. We get pretty close to him because we're, we see him day in and day out, and they all have their personalities, and you gotta figure out their personalities. I want them to enjoy what they're doing. When they get on the track, I want them to, oh, I can't wait to get out there and be tough and you know test my rider out, but, but it's up to me, that's where my eyes come in, to see him out here to find out who's on it and who's not on it. When the horses are done, we follow them back to the barn. These barns are old, you know. I like, they were always talk, talking about getting new barns and stuff. But 
This is Thousand Word. He worked yesterday. At work with Bob, it's easy to forget that there's a real threat to this world. Come here, boy. Come here, boy. His daily routine keeps the crumbling walls and eroding ground out of sight. He lives every day exactly like the ones that came before. He's not the face of a sport here. He's just a veteran trainer doing the thing he's always loved. I always wear jeans, yeah. I used to wear Wranglers when I rode, because the Wranglers is a better fit. It's thicker. But my wife, she doesn't like, she doesn't like Wranglers. She has no cow in her at all, you know? She's no, no cowgirl at all. Hi, support. This is my little horse right here. This is probably the first American girl gelding. <laughs> yes, I'm a sweet boy, mama. I'm a good boy. That's Jill Baffert. They've been married for 18 years and have got a pretty good system going. Bob manages the horses and Jill manages Bob. They met when Bob was a guest on the morning show that Jill anchored in Louisville. Before then, she wasn't a horse person at all. Um, where's my fat pony? <laughs> where's my good boy? Oh, good morning to you, Angel. This guy ran last weekend. He looked really good. Yeah, see, I won. I was a good boy. I was a good boy. Yeah. It's pretty funny to see Jill nuzzle up on these multi-million dollar horses. They all react to her. Even after they've retired and moved to farms in Kentucky, the Baffert horses still recognize her voice. And they still get excited whenever they're about to run. You can actually see it. Okay, watch this. I'm going to show you. This is how in tune they are. Jill stops in the middle of the shed row, takes out her phone, and plays audio of the bugle that tracks use to signal the start of a race. Watch, watch, watch everybody's head. They all come out and they look at the racetrack. This This guy hasn't run before, so he wouldn't know. It's my my party. Oh shit, he's asleep. Look, it really is like a great party trick because they'll all come out and they'll all like look toward the racetrack. Settle down. I'm sorry. Bob will kill me. Get out of here. Did you hear it? I see what you think. It's immediately obvious walking through the barn with Jill that she loves the horses. Nothing sets Bob or Jill off like hearing on the news or reading online that they don't care about their animals. Look, they're bad people in the sport, as evidenced by the indictment, but the Baffords don't want everyone to be painted with that brush. When one of their horses dies, the whole barn mourns. There is nothing sadder than an empty stall when a horse is supposed to be in that stall. His food is waiting for him, his dinner's mixed up, his halter's waiting for him, and there's a profound sadness um, from everybody. There's also maybe that sense of just, did I, did I let the horse down? Or And it, you can never reconcile it. It's something that you never are able to say, oh, okay, well, that's just part of it. You don't you don't ever come to that conclusion. There's an Atlantic Magazine story from six years ago that I think sums up the issue faced by folks like Bob and Jill. The journalist Andrew Cohen wrote, There are essentially three types of people in horse racing. There are the crooks who dangerously drug or otherwise abuse their horses. Then there are the dupes who labor under the fantasy that the sport is broadly fair and honest. And there are the masses in the middle, neither naive nor cheaters, but rather honorable souls 
who know the industry is more crooked than it ought to be, but who still don't do all they can to fix the problem. Bob is in that last group, and he knows it. He's left to answer for every bit of bad behavior in the sport because he's the only person involved in racing who would get recognized in an airport. You know, when something happens, I'm the one they call. What's going on, Bob? I Now, everywhere I go, and you know, like restaurants or whatever, run into people, they go, Bob, what the hell's going on out there? It just came in like a, you know, it's just, it's like this cloud was over us. You know, I think this is the first time that this could all go away. Bob and the thousands of other trainers and owners don't face these risks alone. That's part of what most people miss. Racing is also driven by a hidden, vital working class. Most of the men and women in the barns of Santa Anita are from Mexico or Central America. And that's true for all racetracks in the country. They make minimum wage and often live in the same barns as the animals they care for. Walk through any racetrack backside, and you might be in Los Angeles or Louisville or Long Island, or you might even be in a village in Guatemala, and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. It feels like we've gone back in time. Yeah. Well, back here, you know, back in the in the, in the backstretch, it's definitely a, a whole other community, you know. Hola, ¿cómo estamos? Muy bien, muy bien. That's Oscar De La Torre. He's a community organizer who has taken on the cause of the barn workers since the protests began. So th- th- those are the wraps that they put on the horses. They wash the wraps every day. So after the horse dirties the wraps, they wash them and clean them and then hang them up so they can use them again. Um, and I love that they're, the wraps are drying and there are two pairs of Wranglers drying right there. Like everybody's getting their... Everybody's every, getting cleaned up. Yeah, the pants yeah. are getting, getting clean. Oscar introduces us to one of the grooms, a real-life cowboy. Desde que nací. Oh, wow. So since he was born, he's been working with horses. Yeah, so, so nine, nine years old, he was already riding horses. ¿Y sabes qué son los caballos para mí? I asked him what it's like on the backside when a horse dies. ¿Quieres saberlo? Sí. ¿El que quiere los caballos? Mm-hmm. Llora. Yeah. ¿No me recuerda eso? Yeah. So he says, you know, don't remind me of that, man. He goes, you want to know what it means? He goes, if you love the horses, you cry. He's, he's crying right now. Right now, yeah. See, he's emotional about it. He goes, don't remind me of that right now. You know what I'm saying? So he had to take a little break because this is an emotional thing. It's family to them. They develop a relationship with the horses. Sorry, guys. No, so, okay, hermano. Muchas gracias, eh? Un placer. Activists say these people could just go get other jobs. But that strikes me as arrogant and really unempathetic. The workers we spoke to find their worth and identity in practicing a craft they learned as children. For many, it's their only inheritance. So she says, in closing the, the, the racetrack, she goes, how will we make a living? She has children to feed, you know? And she goes, at my age, I can't get another job doing something else. So she really appreciates the job that she has here taking care of horses. While we walked, Oscar explained something that hadn't really occurred to me. The immigrants who live and work around these horses feel that the protesters are targeting them because they are immigrants. It hasn't escaped their notice that the majority of people calling for the end of their jobs are wealthy and white. The cowboys and cowgirls at Santa Anita believe rich people often care more about animals than they do poor human beings. We've heard it all from some of the animal rights extremists. Like, 
You know, I've heard everything from like, hey, this is America. You know, they should learn English, you know. When they started hearing the whole Trump, you know, the immigration raids and and then this was happening simultaneously, um, they saw it sort of all kind of together. You know, they felt that as an immigrant community, they were under attack, you know, from the federal government, but also in the local community by people that were demanding that they stop making a living taking care of horses on the racetrack. It's hard to sort all this out when the livelihoods of real people are involved. But the protesters weren't wrong about the horses. There were more horses dying during races at Santa Anita. In 2019, the national average was 1.53 dead horses per thousand starts. Santa Anita had roughly double that, 3.01 per thousand starts. It was the worst year for the track in the last decade. And while the DA's investigation didn't turn up a specific culprit, the message of the report was clear. The horse racing industry should do everything in its power to make racing as safe as possible. Plenty of racing people will tell you that they already are, and they have a point. In 2019, there were more than 36,000 races in the United States and 440 horses died, a relatively small percentage of those that ran. And in the last decade, the risk of fatal injury during a race has actually gone down nationwide by 23.5%. There have been fewer dead horses nearly every year. And yet, no matter what safeguards the industry puts in place, that number is never zero. I mean, given all that, is there a safety issue or a PR issue? Uh, well, safety, if you, if you want to make the basis for safety, zero fatalities, it's never going to be safe. That's John Parada. He's the former Stronach executive we talked to earlier about the family feud. If your criteria is for the sport to be acceptable, it cannot have any fatalities. Well, then you can't do it. It's, it's impossible. I've known the best trainers that have trained in the past 50 years. I've known all of them and they've all had horses break down. The violence is baked in. It's like football in that way. Some percentage of athletes are always going to get hurt, just like some horses will always die. And for the past century, we've been okay with that. Here's Joe Drape again. I mean, you know, if you're a Jesuit dropped into the middle of all this and didn't know anything about it, and you'd say, okay, so horses die for a sport so men and women can gamble on it and men and women can fetch two, three million dollars in the sales ring for breeding them, you know, and that's just the cost of doing business. What does that say about us? Horse racing is complicated. In the many months we've been making this podcast, I've come to only one certain conclusion, and that is to be immediately suspicious of any person who thinks they're a hundred percent right. You've been on Twitter Public arguments in America now seem to require a black and white moral certainty that simply doesn't exist here. Horse racing lives in the gray. To racing people, I'd say it's hard to justify a sport in which around 500 horses die a year. Maybe a century ago, it felt different when horses died. Back then, we were more accustomed to living alongside animals. We used to think about horses very differently. But now, I'd say entertainment is not a good enough reason for horses to die. And that brings me to the anti-racing people. Okay, say we get rid of racing. 
The horse farms and the racetracks will all be golf courses and McMansions. But then what? Horses need two acres, each. Where are we going to find that land? Where will the horses run? Who's going to pay for their food and vet bills? Ending racing might actually be sentencing hundreds of thousands of horses to death. Look, I don't know. I could go back and forth like this all day. Because sometimes racing is beautiful, and sometimes racing is ugly. And it is never uglier than in the first few seconds after a horse goes down. You might have seen a horse get injured during a race, either on TV or from the grandstands. But on the track, up close, it's different. It's, it's almost not the sound I ever noticed. This is Kate Papp, a vet who has worked at tracks around the country, including the two in the federal indictment. She is the only horse person we spoke with who was willing to describe what happens when a horse is put down. It's the look in their eye, though, on the racetrack is they just literally, truly have no idea what's going on. They're panicked and scared. And I have to imagine they feel themselves dropping under anesthesia, if nothing else, before the overdose of their heart and brain function stopping, that they know something doesn't feel right. They don't just lay down quietly like your dog or cat and crumple. They violently fall over. I've honestly heard their legs break as they fall backwards. I've seen horses run into a fence as they're dropping because their adrenaline's up, especially after a race. So their cardiac output's pumping so fast that the adrenaline throws the euthanasia solution to their brain so quickly that a lot of times they'll flip over, roll around, and uh, it's a relief when they lay still. Nature is both cruel and beautiful. All of the power and strength that make a horse's death so violent is also what makes a horse so captivating when it runs. All eyes on stall number five with American Pharaoh. Is today the day? Is he the one? In 2015, American Pharaoh had won the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness, and now he was entered in the Belmont Stakes. That's the last leg of the Triple Crown, and the longest of all of those three races, more than any of the horses have ever run. If American Pharaoh won, he'd become the first horse to win the Triple Crown in 37 years. Everybody felt like they were a part of it. Like you can YouTube and see people on cruise ships watching, and people on bars watching, and people at the hockey game watching, and the baseball game. And it was like America paused for a minute, and this horse had the weight of the weight of everybody on his back. They're all in line, and we're ready for the start. They're off in the Belmont Stakes. So all down the backside, he was leading, and Bob was just kind of, he's going easy. Yeah, he's like, looks good, going easy, it looks good, it looks good, it's got no excuses, you know, and you're thinking, oh God, well, there's, you know, something, something's not going to go right here. And American Pharaoh continues to lead the way. And now American Pharaoh has opened up a two-length lead as they come to the top of the stretch. When the horses turn for home, 
What did that feel like? It was absolutely an out-of-body experience. I just remember thinking, I can't believe this is going to happen. I can't, I can't believe it's a, it was a feeling of disbelief. And he just, he did his thing. That was five summers ago. Jill still finds herself reliving it, chasing it, wanting to feel it again. I can tell you that there have been several times throughout the last year where we've just kind of clicked on the, the DVR and watched that race. Several times because it brings, I think about it now, and I could, I could literally probably cry if I kept talking about it. Just the, that moment and uh, just to know that that horse did that for no other reason than that's because what was in his blood. In his blood. That's the whole ballgame right there. A horse's blood has always been the most important part of the sport ever since it first arrived in America. That's next time on Bloodlines. By the end of the 50s, uh, half of the national homes had TV sets. And Native Dancer was the star of that television burst era. He just spent all his time trying to figure out how to breed a horse that would be the fastest horse in the world and would win an English Derby. The tragedy was front page news. I remember asking my mother, why is Nashville's owner on the front page instead of the sports page? What ended? I think the aristocracy in America ended. When my father died, uh, I thought, well, that's, that's the last king of the sport of kings. Bloodlines is hosted and reported by me, Wright Thompson. It was made in collaboration with Pineapple Street Studios. It was produced by Jess Hackle and Courtney Harrell. Our senior producers at ESPN are Eric Neal and Mike Philbrick. Our editors are Joel Lovell and Maddie Sprung-Kaiser, with help from Jonathan Minivar. Mixing by Hannes Brown. Our researcher is Diane Hodson. Our fact checker is Dale Brauner. The executive producers at Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. The executive producers at ESPN are Connor Schell, Rob King, Allison Overholt, and Patricia Mays. Production management and licensing by Catherine Sankey. Our ESPN fact checker is George Milkov. Additional production support from Eric Paul and Linda Powder. The ESPN audio team includes Tom Ricks, Vice President, Audio Digital Strategy and Marketing, Megan Judge, Director of Audio Distribution and Marketing, Pete Giannassini, who is Senior Director of Audio Production, and Ryan Graner, Director of Digital Audio Operations. Special thanks to the Horse Racing Radio Network for their coverage of the 2017 Breeders' Cup, and to NBC Sports for their coverage of the 2015 Belmont Stakes. Special thanks to Barry Finkel, Eric Mennel, Henry Malofsky, Jeffrey Reed, and Maria Robin Somerville. And of course, gratitude to Jay Bird and Coco, Greg Dooley, Christian Needler at Dantana's, the staff at Hotel Cavell, and especially the bartenders at La Poubelle. And obviously, House of Pies. Mmm, House of Pies. Thanks for listening. See you next time on Bloodlines. <laughs>